The views, comments, stories, and opinions shared within this podcast are my own or those of my guests, and in no way represent the views of the company or companies that I or we work for. All stories, events, and tales shared within this episode may or may not have happened in the manner in which they are told. They may or may not have even happened at all. The details have been changed to protect the innocent and the guilty alike. This is Spotlight. Minimum 200, 100 above. 50, 40, 30, 20, 10. Retard, retard. You're listening to Squawk Ident, an aviation podcast dedicated to the journey and the challenges surrounding the life and career of Aviator Tony, his co-hosts, and his guests. Together, we will explore the many pathways to an aviation profession, the realities of what a professional aviator can expect in today's marketplace, and we share many stories along the way. I'm your host, Aviator Tony, an airline pilot currently flying for a legacy airline with close to 20 years on the flight line. This is episode 55 of Squawk Ident, recorded on the 13th of September, 2020. From the 21st floor of the Sahara Hotel and Casino in Las Vegas, Nevada. On today's show, we discuss what happens when an airline pilot fails to show up for a scheduled flight. We also discuss laser strikes, 115 degree or 46 degrees centigrade days in Southern California, combined with extremely unhealthy air quality. Overflying Cuba, September 11th, 19 years later, and much, much more. We also have the opportunity to speak with an amazing aviator and friend to the Squawk Ident family. In today's episode, we will explore his journey in aviation. From his humble beginnings at the University of Dubuque Aviation to the path he took from flight instructing to aerial photography and more, we sit down today with Captain John H. of Sandpiper Regional Airlines. But before we begin, let's take a moment to thank Captain Paul, a.k.a. Clubber. For joining us on episode 54, Tomcats, Top Gun, and Recurrent Sim Rides. It was a special treat for me to have the opportunity to speak with Paul about his amazing journey in aviation. Let us start out by introducing one of my fantastic Squawk Ident co-hosts. He is a former international and professional racquetball champion a member of the 9G Club, an AMP, an avionics tech, an RC aircraft commander, and a 737 pilot for Legacy Airlines. From his fortress of isolation from somewhere in Flower Mound, Texas, where he is avoiding the heat and taking care of that green, green grass. Help me in welcoming back to the show, Rob D. Rob, what's up, brother? Hey, what's up, Tony? Doing well, man. How you doing? Doing pretty good. I understand you've had a little bit of a vacation from flying. A little bit. Yeah, what was that like? It was was kind of nice. Got about a five-day break, and um, four of those days, me and my family took a trip up to Rhode Island to uh, partake in my sister's wedding. So got to see a lot of family, a lot of cousins that we haven't seen in a while. Um, The weather was perfect. Um, So it was a really nice nice uh, getaway and a great time to spend with family uh fortunately it was a very quick trip um so i was telling you early it felt like a a quick four-day trip um so i'm back at home i'm exhausted (laughs) i need to get some rest because there was not much sleep going on uh in those four days because we were up just socializing and having a good time yeah and did any shenanigans happen while you're on this uh 
little wedding crash of yours? <laughs> well, you know, none that I know of. I'm sure there were. There was some. Um, the the uh, hung around with my uh, my uh, brother-in-law to be. Um, and all his groomsmen and those guys are a great bunch of guys. Uh, of course, uh, it wouldn't be uh, they wouldn't be really good friends if there wasn't a lot of heckling and shenanigans going on between them. Um, but got to hear a pretty good uh, good story about uh, from the best man, and uh, it was a really <laughs> it's really eye opening story as most of them are. Um, it's kind of funny. Uh, but uh, as far as the four days that I was there. Uh, I don't think we had very much time to do it because it was like the wedding was actually uh, um, in the back in his own backyard. So uh, there was a lot of prep going on that we actually had to do um, just keep the cost down. And, you know, with COVID being pretty uh, prominent everywhere, uh, you know, everything being locked down, there was really no venues willing to, to host a wedding. So we said, hey, let's just do it in his backyard. So anyway, long story short, just a crazy, busy what weekend it was fast it was furious but it was it was awesome it was beautiful that's great and i'm so happy that you had that opportunity to get away and get out of the heat from uh yeah. from texas and and you know get out there that's yeah wonderful. it was cool i think uh, last night might have been the coolest night but it was got down to like 55 or 50 or something like that but yeah you know, we're wearing like you know 18 piece suit or something like that so, you, so it was perfect. Yeah, <laughs> we weren't sweating, so that was nice. Yeah, did you did you wear the cummerbund? Oh, uh, well, they didn't have cummerbunds. They had ah. suspenders, vests, <laughs> you know, four button jacket or something like that. It was we we looked sharp, but man, uh, we were all talking. If if we had to do this in anything above like seventy degrees, we would have been sweating like like dogs at a Chinese restaurant. Can you imagine? Yeah, no, thank you. That's uh, no. <laughs> Also joining us today is another fantastic co-host here on Squawk Ident. He is a professional flight instructor, a former Embraer 145 airline pilot, a King Air instructor, a Falcon commander, and a corporate operator as well. He joins us from his San Diego Palace of Education. Please help me in welcoming back to the show, Captain Roger. Roger, what's up, brother? Well, you know, it's been a little bit different. I've been working pretty hard for the last two or three weeks and it's a definitely been a little bit of a change for me this this whole flying thing again what's that do you have kind of like a what i say an airline schedule where you're flying two or three or four days a week it is like an airline schedule i have been flying yeah but you pretty much hit it two three four days a week or so um actually it was six seven days in a row last week wow um, definitely not quite as much flying on each day like the airline guys do, but the, the stretches of flying is, you know, all of a sudden it, it, it picked way up. So been flying mostly, mostly on the Western third of the country. Um, so nothing too far, but like I said, this whole working thing, it's, it, it's new. It's different. <laughs> well, and you've been dealing with flying, like you said, on the Western third of the country and these fires that have just riddled california and nevada and oregon and washington state you know the air quality the smoke i mean we were talking a couple shows ago about the atis code fu which means smoke right boom i've seen a lot of that lately there's a lot of fu on those atises aren't there's there a lot of fu's out there right now jesus really i mean did you have any uh issues with uh taking off or landing uh at an airport where there was a lot of smoke uh, well, you know, we didn't have any specific issues per se. However, it's definitely um, affecting things. You know, the Bay Area and the in the California is definitely 
the worst affected. I went into Oakland, in and out of Oakland a couple times this week, and you're talking middle of the afternoon, full ILS, mile, mile and a quarter visibility, 600 feet overcast, and it's not clouds. It's smoke. And it's, it's orange. It's an orange color. It's, it's really, it's really sad um, is the best way to kind of describe it. And just overflying, you know, that landing in an airport, that's the best example that I have, but just flying over, I've been to Montana, I've been down to Wyoming, Utah, Nevada, California, Oregon, and the entire, it, you, you do not see the ground. You, you climb up around 23,000 feet and you'll get above it and you cannot see the ground for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of miles. And it, it is definitely scary um, and sad, you know, unfortunately with what's going on out here on the, on the Western third of the country. Yeah. I was taxing out at Los Angeles uh, yesterday morning. I started uh, a three day. So yesterday, 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 day before, um, regardless, uh, there's a caravan that's parked on the ramp right at the threshold of the South Complex there on 25 right, which is a normal departure for us. And we looked over at this parked caravan and we thought, oh my God, did that caravan catch on fire? There's brown, like charred smoke coming out on the side of the fuselage. And then we realized what it was. The airplane flew through the smoke, as you mentioned, must have been in an area or at an airport uh, on approach to landing and they were low enough to get through the smoke. And you could see where the yellow plumes of smoke were coming out of the exhaust of that uh, turbojet or turbofan aircraft. Uh, yeah, turbojet, turboprop. You could see where the smoke was coming out from the turboprop exhaust and going down the fuselage. And it, it basically turned the aircraft a brownish orange. Uh, and we thought, wow, at first we thought it was that the aircraft had an engine fire, but it wasn't. It was just soot. I can only imagine what the engines had to deal with flying through that. Yeah, you know, I kind of, it's one of those things that I, I worry, I thought about, not so much worried about it, but just thought about flying through some of these, uh, through the smoke um, for, you know, even on the descent, you're, you're talking about, you know, 100 or 200 miles on your descent, depending on how air traffic control is treating you. And, you know, mostly we talk about volcanic ash. And I think that it's the smoke isn't so bad because all of those particles are, are just going to go straight through. They're already burned. You know, unfortunately, there's nothing, no rock inside it, like when we talked about volcanic ash. But it's definitely something that will discolor the airplane for sure. And, you know, even with all of our ventilation equipment, it still stinks up the cabin um, for sure as you're coming as you're climbing out or descending through it. Yeah, we felt that coming in uh, to Los Angeles last week as well, as we're descending through that layer of just orange smoke in the evening. It's, it's not very pleasant. And it, granted, the uh, airline uh, narrow-body aircraft that uh, Rob and I are flying do have very good uh, air filtration systems. You know, we've seen these articles in the, in the past few months uh, related to uh, reporters talking about uh, the spread of COVID and how the air inside an aircraft is actually a lot better than the air even in your own home because of these filtration systems. And the validity of these stories, uh, I kind of question a little bit, but they do a very good job. So it's not like you, like you in a smaller uh, jet aircraft can, can smell that a little bit easier, I think. But yeah, uh, 
definitely the smoke has had a large impact on operations. But let's continue on with introducing our next guest. Gentlemen, please help me in welcoming to the show one of the most impressive pilots that I have had the opportunity to fly with. He's a former lifeguard for the Chicago Parks District, a former line service technician for the city of Dubuque, a former aerial imagery pilot, a professional flight instructor, and he is currently a captain at a regional airline that we here on the show like to call Sandpiper. Ladies and gentlemen, help me in welcoming to the show, Captain John H. John, how are you, bro? Uh, pretty good, Tony. Um, been doing good. Um, like I said, been listening to your podcast. Uh, it's been a blast listening to them. Uh, how to say, uh, you know, how I got interested. You know, so, like obviously seen you promote, uh, talk about your podcast, and but I got interested into it originally last year. Um, I didn't get a chance to delve into it until this year, but. It was just like, well, my time to coming to Legacy would be coming up, and uh, I've been reaching out to friends what to expect, but also your podcast was a good way of giving me a fuller version of what to expect, you know, what your trips were going to be like, what, you know, equipment would be better, you know, seven, three or the bus, and, you know, what the possible, <laughs> and it's just like, uh, how to say it, uh, that, what kind of sucked me in, and um, so, but yeah, I've been enjoying your podcast so far, uh, you know, and everybody listening to everybody's journey, and it's just uh, everybody's journey is truly unique. But uh, I guess this is to sum it up since the last time we saw each other. I mean, I want to say it was like, uh, I want to say at least three years ago, three or four years ago. It's been Sounds a long right, time, yeah. but uh, you know, it, you know, it's like I've been good. Um, you know, got a lot to catch up, which we'll explain uh, if we talk. And um, definitely, um, this, I guess, what I could say. Yeah, no, I, I'm so happy that you agreed to be on the show. Um, and you and I were kind of going back and forth with some DMs on uh, some of the social medias and some text messages. And you know, you're you're giving me some of your input, and I really do appreciate it. And and that's exactly what this show is all about. If I knew, or I had a a, a place where I could have found out a little bit more of what to expect, I think my career would have been a little bit easier. Uh, because I would have kind of heard the stories uh, more than just because when you're at a when you're instructing you get to hear from other instructors and if the other instructors are around your age and their experience is the same as yours you're not going to get this broad understanding of a particular industry so then you move on to you know maybe getting a cargo job or a charter job and again you're kind of you get to hear some stories here and there from your fellow pilots or you know the people that you're working with, but you're really unless you're flying somewhere where they had a huge history, and even then, it's just that it's history. It's from the past, so things have changed. So to get a kind of a current perspective on what to expect when you come into either a regional job or a mainline job, and so those young people that are just interested in aviation, interested in what they're getting into, that's exactly what this podcast is all about the struggles and the challenges of an aviator's journey into a professional pilot career, you know, and, and you summed it up so nicely. Thank you so much for saying that. Thank you for your kind words. It is an honor. Yeah, thank you. Today, I wanted to talk a little bit about how you got started. I mean, that's like we've mentioned many times, that's really the first question when you fly with someone uh, for the first time. It's like, oh, what'd you do before this, you know? Um, but let's bring it back. Uh, you got started at a relatively young age, at least in your interest. In aviation, can you tell me a little bit 
about what sparked that interest? Um, there's kind of a couple things that kind of fell that uh, started it all off for me. I mean, the biggest one I would say is just that when I was about six years old, my parents took me out to the airport and go to the hangar and, you know, okay, they open up the hangar and like said, there's an airplane in there. And it was kind of like, so that's what's seeing that airplane. And, you know, it sparked my interest and I knew what an airplane was growing up and, uh, you know, up to that point, but it was just like, now just saying like, oh my God, my parents have one. And like, I think that lit the fire, so to speak. And, you know, that initial interest, and it's just like, I wanted to go fly in it. You know, I begged them to take me up. And at that point in time, um, my parents did not fly so much at that point, but we had a partner that who flew our airplane at the time. So we arranged for a trip and they took us up on a night flight around the Chicago area. And then, um, we did a couple more flights, you know, throughout the years, you know, here and there, but, um, seeing that airplane is what kind of triggered, um, I, I guess that that's what lit the fire and the passion. And, um, I was just obsessed with aviation from that point here on out and, um, went grade school, nothing but airplane drew in my doodles. And then like high school, I started pushing for, uh, flight lessons and, Seeing that airplane in the hangar is what sparked it. And uh, then that goal back in my mind is like, when I get older, I want to fly that airplane. Like 20 years later, I got to make that happen. Got to flew that very first, that very same airplane. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, how did your parents come across yeah. having an airplane? Are your parents pilots at all? or? Um, they used to fly. And so... Aviation kind of became a fan, was a part of a family business, so to speak. Um, back in the 70s and 80s, uh, my uncle uh, was more of an entrepreneur and he bought into, he invested into a local FBO and charter company out here in uh, Dubuque, Iowa, and, you know, raised funds. And so we started up, uh, they started a charter, and then it became a regional airline. And it was a couple names, you know, but originally started out as mid-continent airline and then it became American Central and uh, um, unfortunately uh, deregulation was going on strong in the early 80s you know from the CAA to the uh, deregulation of the you know to the FAA so what it is today so to speak um, so it came a free market um, that the finances, you know, of the company wasn't strong enough to weather the storm. And unfortunately, um, the company no longer existed. I think it went under in 1985. Um, there was talk, I remember reading about it, that we were supposed to go a merger with Comair. And at the last minute, Comair backed out. Oh, wow. And so that was the end of the line for American Central. And that company, we they operated uh, Navajos and uh, Banaround Days. And uh, uh, yeah. which is the original uh, airliner made by Embraer. Bondaranis, the uh, Embraer 110. Yeah, I got to see, uh, doing a couple key um, North of Luther turns, I get to see him every once in a while pop in. You know, so I got to see one in action, you know, always wondered. And, um, but how this airplane came about was, so my uncle invested in the airline. He got his private pilot instrument and i think he worked up his to his commercial my parents got involved with flying you know because it was kind of like a family venture they were investing money into the business and uh so my mom and my dad respectively got their private 
my dad went one step farther with the instrument and back in the, the later day, I want to say like 82, 83, um, they, um, was like, well, we wanted a personal airplane and, you know, it was kind of to help with business needs, you know, like, okay, if we need to shuttle a pilot from one location to another, we could without taking a whole big airplane, uh, a larger, uh, plane out of the fleet. So they bought the airplane out of their personal expenses. And, um, well, when the business went under, they kept the airplane thinking that they would still fly, have some time and they never quite got around to it, but they had some friends that worked um, in the police department where my parents uh, were police officers on the side. I mean, not on the side, but that was their full-time job. And so they had a partnership. And so it's like, so we were able to keep the airplane in exercise, so to speak. It doesn't do any good to sit around. So uh, the partner, uh, he was flying the airplane when he wanted to. And um, so it was nice. And they kept the airplane all these years. And um when I got older and got involved with aviation, you know, then it was my turn to kind of take the rein and, you know, just to keep things polite. Uh, we bought our co-owner out of the ownership. So the airplane is fully into the, our family right now. So I'm the one kind of like now the, the pilot in the family. So well, that's amazing. That's kind of how my parents. That is so cool. Yeah. So your parents were two police officers in Chicago and th through a business partner decided, Hey, let's buy an airplane and start, uh, an, basically a charter airline that turned into kind of like a, a small feeder regional. Is that right? Um, well, my uncle um, was living out here in Iowa and he was the business partner. And just because family, my uncle offered to my parents, would you like to invest with me um, into the business? And so as a result, so that's how my parents kind of got roped and involved with aviation as well. Um, that my uncle kind of extended out, you know, the offer. And he was the one that started up the, the charter, which expanded into a, a regional airline, so to speak. Wow. So. That is, that is amazing. And so by this, you know, happenstance that your parents were investing in this company and then later turned into them being full owners of this aircraft and sparked your journey in aviation. Do you remember how old you were when you first went to that hangar? I was about six years old. So, wow. um, I want to say it was like six or five. That's the number I keep telling myself, you know, just like age was out of the window at that question. I was like, at that point when I saw it, it was like, I can't wait to get old enough to fly this. You know, I was already scheming like, you know, okay, just got to get to 16, you know, 10 more years, you know, there you go. to wow. fly it. So uh, I waited a little bit longer. So you had your journey all kind of planned out at a very young age. So every move you made was from a young time in your life was always to be a pilot. I, I would say so. I mean, I remember before that I was obsessed with trains and, you know, I wanted to be a train engineer and, um, or a locomotive engineer, I guess the best proper term. And, um, we befriended a, a local engineer at the local rail yard in Chicago got a chance to drive it, but it was like, ultimately it was the airplane that won out. And, um, you know, but I think every kid goes through that age, you know, they're obsessed with everything and seeing some of my friends, kids at this age, uh, actually I was at his birthday party tonight, you know, like says, he's just obsessed with cars, trains, airplanes, everything, you know, at three years old, you're kind of 
obsessed with everything that moves and it doesn't help that his dad is a race car driver so it, <laughs> on the on the side it's a hobby so it's um you, know, you just see that fascination and then you know kind of get thinking you know like where will that go so yeah, yeah. Well, you know, like that's amazing i how... try to win him over with the airplane so eventually there you go yeah so. definitely get your friends hooked on aviation they'll They'll love you for it for the rest of their careers and lives, I'm sure. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So your journey took you to the University of Dubuque, where, you know, you already had this path idea in mind, and you got into flight operation studies, and which also uh, focused on aviation management at U of D or University of Dubuque. Um, And you were telling me something interesting, that you were pretty smart to say, hey, I'm taking all these business classes anyway i should probably get a minor as well can you tell me a bit about that experience as i was going through my course curriculum at the university of dubuque um you know obviously i day one when i came up you know signed up and you know to be a student at the university it was flight operation you know flying airplane um and then it was kind of like as i was going through beyond my freshman year you know my advisor was kind of like okay you know do you want to just make it aviation flight operation only and I guess it's like, you know, I've always kind of been a bookworm or, you know, someone who's always about trying to stay with maintaining good grades. And it was just like, well, and then I was also thinking like now that my advisor put in my head, it's like, wouldn't have a hurt to have a backup plan. And in this year, I wasn't hurting hearing from the advisor, but some of my professors as well, like have something just in case if you're uh, are unable to fly and, you know, for a medical reason, or if we just say that career is just not quite panning out, meaning like the jobs aren't there, um, have something else where you can diversify your skills. And even if it's just aviation management, and if I had to, you know, say manage a local restaurant or manage a local business, um, the, the philosophy is still the same. Obviously I would have to learn the specific of that business, um, but the, the groundwork was there. So that what kind of got me into the aviation management and I kind of thought, well, you know, and so I had some professors that did manage airports and, you know, so it was kind of like, oh, seeing this where it could take you. Um, and then it was ultimately then I was junior year, I think uh, I was kind of so I was finishing myself up, you know, coursework and class wise. It was just like, well, I'm so close to a business minor, you know, with half of these uh, the classes I've taken for the aviation management major. Why not just tack on the minor? So it was just like a double major and a minor from the college. And, and for a lot of my peer at this school, um, this is kind of, I wouldn't say the norm, but um, it wasn't for me, I had to get a special sign off on extra course load, but mm. for me, it wasn't that big of a deal. Um, but uh, for a lot of my peers uh, at that time, you know, a lot of them did do that. You know, they'll have aviation management and flight operation um, and then maybe a minor mixed in. So. Yeah, that's pretty smart because we, you know, a lot of uh, those of us that have been around for a little bit have said the same thing. If you're going to do a focus or a career in aviation, have a backup plan. And I know Rob's, yes. Rob's nodding his head. And, you yeah. know, it, and Roger and I have talked about this a few times as well. You know, what can I, what's my fallback? I think is what Roger and I were talking about. So always have a fallback. Um, if you decide, hey, uh, this, this is it. This is the only thing I want to do. That's fine. But have a fallback. Because like you said, you know, if, if something were to happen that would create a huge downturn in the industry, a pandemic, then you, know, you would have 
at least the opportunity or something on their resume to say, hey, maybe I can go get a job to be an airport manager at my local, you know, J yeah. class Delta airspace. Uh, and you mentioned it in an earlier podcast too. If you lose your medical, if you lose your medical, is a perfect example too. Absolutely. You know, you, now you you know can't legally fly for a one twenty one one thirty five. Um, you know, have a backup plan so you can go right into uh, you know that other thing you actually learn to do. No, yeah. or part or, or part ninety one even. I mean, you lose yeah, your medical, that's true. You, you're out. I mean, that's that's the worst case scenario for for a lot yeah. of Yeah, I'm thinking like class one because I mean, there's still people who can still fly with who can't get a class one, but you know, you couldn't work for a living. You know, right. so can't get paid as a, a fly, pilot, a commercial yeah. pilot, right? Yeah. So and and there's some rules in there. I'm sure some listeners are thinking, well, what about a class two medical of commercial pilot, and I can go, you know, banner so many or something. scenarios. Yeah, sure. I mean, there's there's plenty to do, but that's pretty smart. Yeah, she was talking about limited uh, medical, Rob. Um, like I said, I knew a gentleman who flew uh, one of the corporate out here in Dubuque, Iowa. He was uh, restricted to a class two due to his uh, type two. Uh, I, I forget which type, but he had diabetes. But yeah. uh, due to special insurance with the medical, um, he was able to uh, still exercise and fly. You know, and fortunately, his company was very supportive, and they worked with him on that. And so it's just um, there. There are exceptions out there, but it's yeah, just like yeah, yeah. It creates it a, a lot. Yeah, it creates a challenge for sure when you, it comes time to <laughs> get another medical, or you know, if you had to get another job. <laughs> but yeah, but well, it can be done. Yeah. And I remember listening to his tale. It was just like, especially it would be soon as like, boom, as soon as he got the one medical, it was automatically starting to work, going back through the paperwork to start the next medical. And it's just like, I, I the fathom, that just like blows my mind. But he was passionate yeah. and that was great. But I yeah. don't think I could, that would drive me nuts at one point or another. Yeah. So. And you never know. You could be totally healthy for, 30 years into your career. And then here you are maybe in your late fifties or early sixties thinking, Oh, I got 10, 15 years left. No problem. I got this. And then all of a sudden something just pops up and, and it's debilitating to your career uh, as well as your health and, you know, to have a backup plan. And as, as pilots get older, I think, uh, as the income starts coming in, they start looking at other ways to invest their money for the future and get ready for retirement. Because we all know, you know, your standard 401k packages are great, but when you're coming to retire, if you happen to be retiring during an economic downturn, that could be detrimental to your plans. So to have some kind of, whether that's, you know, uh, an interest in real estate or an interest in another business or some, something, um, it definitely is beneficial for pilots of all kinds uh, to have that as a an idea. And so it was very smart of you to to think about that at a very young age while you're in college to say, hey, well, I'm here. I might as well get a minor in this and you know, also get into the uh, aviation management as well, because there's so many things that I could do with it in the event that I you know, end up not being able to fly. So you you progressed throughout your university studies. And you also simultaneously were taking flying lessons, right, through the university. Uh, what can you tell me about um, those days of, of, of general aviation instruction and flying? So I actually started my private license uh, private, um, prior to coming to the university my junior year back in high school. Oh, yeah. Um, it was a slow 
process. Um, part of it was that uh, my parents agreed. And, and, and the first thing first, before even getting to that point was I am partially deaf. Um, I have partial hearing loss. And so I have been wearing hearing aids since grade school. Not too many people know too many deaf pilots out there. And it's like, I heard of, about the stories about all the deaf pilots, but you know, in the, you know, the circle that I was, it was always more like about reference to the warbirds, you know, B-25 bomber pilots, you know, they were going deaf because the engine exhaust was right next to them. But um, I, we kind of sought out, you know, local, any of the pilot friends that my parents were still in touch with. And it was just like, go get a medical. And I reached out at the airport where we had our airplane hangered at, you know, who did they, they suggest. And we looked up uh, the parent, the, med, the AME that used to do my parents' medical, and he was still doing the business. And so um, we reached out and kind of like, he said, uh, sure, you know, so I came in, did my medical. And at the time, um, I actually still have the paper somewhere, uh, the temporary, you know, student certificate, uh, yeah. medical. Uh, pilot certificate um i do hang on to them that stuff and i actually found the other day when i was cleaning out through my office like my private temporary you know the paper so that was kind of that's awesome neat, the, i was like can't believe i still have this um yeah that's so, cool yeah so we did the medical and passed with flying colors you know and you know the only quote you know he did i did make aware about the hearing and you know obviously if i didn't get the medical i was denied you know but um he uh, called down to Oak City and Oklahoma just basically said they treated it like glasses. So it was like, um, I wear glasses, obviously. So they'll say like must wear corrective lenses. And so he just had to still put in there in the statement, you know, must wear a uh, hearing aid. So that's all I had to have in my medical. And um, so that's, you know, I think I got that like early on with my flight training because I took a couple flights obviously to get started and you know, it's just like okay is this what I really want make sure I wasn't going to get like air sick or anything excuse me um so that being said it's just like I at that point I was committed and with getting the uh a clear call back from the uh, Oklahoma City that you know it was like maybe like 15-20 minutes probably the longest 15-20 minutes during the medical like agonizing you're just waiting to hear the good news or God forbid, bad news, but, um, so yeah, I was walking out, you know, at the medical and continued on with my private, um, yeah, so the private was a slow journey, took about two and a half years, because what was going on was my parents wanted me to work a summer job, uh, to keep earning my income, um, and part of it was to help pay for the flight training, but the other is my parents wanted me to be financially secure, and they said, we'll support your flight training, but we want you to work the job, and, um, so I worked it, got into lifeguarding, um, growing up, um, I was a competitive swimmer. Um, you know, I wouldn't say Olympic competitor, but we, uh, I was on the local swim team, you know, in the park district, you know, and, uh, they had a program called junior lifeguard, which is kind of like a summer camp that would kind of prep you for being a lifeguard. Yeah. And, uh, so natural progression was become a lifeguard. So when I was old enough to do it at age 16, um, I started uh, lifeguarding on the lakefront of Chicago. And uh, so it was a summer job. So it was work five days a week. And then on the weekends, I would go down to uh, this airport on the south side of Chicago. Um, it's um, by Orland Park called Howell, New Lenox Howell Airport. It's no longer there. Um, it closed like in 2006, unfortunately. Um, the owner uh, wanted to develop, you know, thought there was money in real estate sold the airport and closed it down and um 
the funny thing is only like maybe like two homes have been built there and i think that was you know like that to me just kind of hits host to home is chicago shutting down mig's field it was like it was a nice quaint little airport and um and i think it's like yeah i did my first solo there and um you know yeah. i met a lot of great people it was kind of hard the the biggest challenge and this is something i would tell people now it's just like when you go into flight training is um set the time for it um because my journey was when i was doing the flight training while i was making progress it took me about 80 hours to get my private i wanted to cut it sooner but it was just like i felt like i was taking like three steps forward and then it would be like a step and a half back because then like the following week you know i might depending on the weather for the weekend if i had other commitment i might get one or two flight lessons in you know i would try to double block with my flight instructor and um, sometimes you just get burned out even with the double blocking and it was just like, just I'll come back tomorrow. And then if you get bad weather, it kind of makes it a challenge and winter was a challenge. And, um, mm -hmm. um, but yeah, the flight training took a while and I ended up finishing it up my first uh, fall semester freshman year of college, where I was able to finish up the last of my cross country requirement, get my sign off. And, uh, it was kind of pretty cool. And, um, with my check ride. I had uh, the DME uh, designated examiner. The D, um, he used to work for my uncle's airline, um, so as one of the oh. pilots. So it was kind of pretty cool. Like he was like, "You're not related to Terry, are you?" And I'm like, "Yeah." And I'm like, um, "Like, oh, I used to work for him." And you know, and it's like, "Oh, that was kind of cool." So it was nice the to small have small world, small world aviation oh, thing. Yeah. <laughs> we we mentioned oh, this definitely. almost every single episode. We warn it people is. that it's a very small industry and you never know when you're going to come across someone. So always be kind to each other, treat each other with respect because look at your, your perfect situation here. Your DE was a former employee of your father. Now, I assume everything went very well and that he didn't have any like, hang-ups no, against no working for your dad. <laughs> you know. No, not at all. I mean, there was a couple moment during that check ride i remember i think it was like he was asking for a maneuver and um i remember getting slightly flustered but i took a moment to collect myself and um was able to continue everything um that whole check ride was just a blur in my memory i mean i remember flying and doing everything but there was a couple i remember there was a few moments i got flustered and i can't pinpoint it in my head because it was just like i was so excited and terrified at the same time i can't believe i'm doing this and then um Ultimately, I walked out, you know, with my pilot license. So it's just, um, you know, and, and yeah. I think that's the biggest thing is I've even now um, at Sandpiper, when I go back for recurrent, um, there's always something to learn from, even if it's just a recurrent event. Um, and I think that's always a good thing to have. So, yeah, I wanted to back up a moment and just ask you, you said something, you and I flew together at Sandpiper uh, before I left. Um, I remember you know, the whole experience was very positive. And I was so very impressed back then when you were explaining to me how your, your medical worked, because I never flew up until that point with someone who had partial hearing loss. I always believed that that was something that would disqualify you. And I always found it so intriguing when you explained to me how it could be corrected with the hearing aids and it's just like another restriction to your license, like having glasses. And you mentioned it earlier in your story here. And I just wanted 
to kind of get into that just a little bit so that our listeners out there, and I can't tell you how many times that I have answered questions to young people or young aviators that are interested in aviation, but believe that they couldn't pass a medical exam because they thought they had to have 20-20 or, or you can't be a pilot, or they had to have perfect hearing, or they had to have, you know, uh, they couldn't be colorblind. And the truth is that there are so many uh, details that you can get around some of these previously thought to be, you know, grounding items. So you mentioned that as long as it can be corrected with your hearing aids, it's just another thing on your medical that you have to have with you when you fly, like glasses. Is it just that simple, or is, is there a little bit more to it than that? Um, it's pretty much that simple, but um, the, the AMEs that I do go to now, um, they are aware of it. And I kind of I had an AME for a while where he did not list that on there, even though he was aware of it. Um, hmm. It was just that because his criteria, every AME has a slightly different criteria, how they look at certain things. But uh, hmm. obviously, they're falling well within the FAA guideline that is issued for these first class or respected class medical that they're issuing. Um, most of them will be like, they'll have a conversation in the room. And it's like, they'll just ask me to take my hearing aid out. Can you hear me here, here, what part, you know, because when we're in interpersonal space, like, okay, last three feet apart. And I respond well to mid to deep voice, uh, deep brain, you know, like I could hear that most, for most guys, I can hear and talk fairly well. Um, you know, like high pitch voice. I do have a moderate loss where it's like, it has to be louder before I would hear that. And uh, that's what I tell my wife, but she never listens to me. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, good. Yeah, it's all good. So, yeah, so a lot of them would just, you know, they'll just kind of, I remember one time they did like the snapping test, like, can you hear this? You know, he would snap his finger, you know, walk around the room as he was kind of asking me other questions. It's like, can you hear Mm -hmm. this? Can you hear this? And then, you know, no big deal. Um, So, and the other thing is like with the hearing aids nowadays, like you can get them adjust. So it's like, adjusted like my hearing aid, my hearing loss is more from permanent nerve damage now we never figured out what exactly caused that for me and the best guess that we kind of figured out is that i had ear infections when i was little and um that could have been a possible factor yeah. um i never let it stop bothering me obviously i felt like um electronics and water don't mix but it didn't stop me from being a lifeguard and i never had to had a situation where i had to compromise that but you know, they come out so quick and easy, not a big deal. And at the end of the day, if I need to save somebody when I was lifeguarding, you know, it's just like, I'm going to save them first. I'll worry about myself later. So right. um, fortunately, I never had to put that to, you know, put that to the test. But um, sure. yeah, most of it's pretty simple. And, late. and then at the end of the day, like, as I educated my AMEs and most of my AMEs that I've been working with, they're pilots themselves. So that helps make some better relationship. And at the end of the day, it's like, I carry spare batteries with me. Like as your, um, that's the only problem I have with these is that you know the battery sometimes can die at the most inconvenient time, uh, so the batteries just swap in and out. Um, but then it's like as you know, as we all know, for those of us with glasses, like you must carry a spare set of lenses. Um, you know what is a the last current prescription or just another set of contacts. Uh, so it's like right. the batteries are kind of your backup. And lastly, but least, it's like if I for. God forbid, I thought I had spare batteries and I, they were all out, which hasn't happened. I just simply can turn uh, the volume up on the audio panel. So that's my last resort. I mean, so I have nice. that option of 
being able to still clearly communicate with my uh, crew members, you know, front and back. So, yeah. Awesome. And, so and thank you so much for sharing that. That's great. So, yeah, I mean, in, in college, I remember one of my buddies, um, he's working now as a corporate pilot. He was colorblind, uh, didn't stop him. Um, and then reading through history, um, I'm big into World War II history, but uh, there was an English uh, pilot who lost both of his legs as an amputee. And he, you know, you know, prior to the war and um, during the war, he was a very successful fighter pilot for the British. Um, so if you ever look up the name Douglas Bader, um, he was a double amputee. And uh, so it's like stories like that is, you know, there are pilots out there who can fly. And I yeah, remember successful. Yeah, um, there was an article that I remember seeing not too, it was about maybe a year or two ago about a gentleman um, who was wearing, it was a European airline, he had a malfunction with his uh, prosthetic arm. It got stuck to the thrust lever or something like, uh, you know, they were able to still fly, but the idea that there are pilots out there with prosthetics safely flying people around. And so yeah. I definitely encourage everybody. Um, I have gotten questions by people at the local fly-in um, when I'm helping out there, the, you know, it's like, what can we do for um, alternate, you know, possibly making controls accessible for someone, you know, who is say, um, they lost in use of their lower extremities, you know? So, um, so it's just like aviation is working on making that happen. And I believe there are some independent, you know, people out there who have made it successful, you know, like for those that can't fly. I mean, uh, yeah. I think there's the one girl, Jessica Hines, you know, she doesn't have any arms. She flies with her feet. Um, I think that's the right name. I could be wrong. I remember her first name is Jessica, though. Um, so it's definitely um, aviation. It's like I think it's, it still can be an accessible field for all those who wants to partake. Yeah. Cool. And don't let, you know, any kind of current perceived uh, disability that you, you might think will disqualify you as a pilot you know, discourage you from yeah. getting the facts, going to your local AME, asking. Um, I, we have a family friend, and the, the, the son is six or 15 years old, and he's starting to take private pilot license lessons. And so, they, you know, they know I'm a pilot, so they're asking me a lot of questions. And it turns out that he had a minor medical issue. And they're like, well, is this going to disqualify him? You know, what... what, what it's going to crush his dream. He really wants to, to get his private pilot license. And I told her, uh, his mom, the same thing that we're talking about now. Don't let that discourage you. Find out the facts. Find out if it, it's something that is going to be an issue or it could easily get, you'll get around it just by jumping through a couple more hoops that the others might not have to. So thank you for sharing that with us. I really do appreciate it. You've shed some light to this question that is going around the GA community constantly for, since I started 20 years ago. You know, what qualifies you? What doesn't qualify you? What if I lose my medical? So knowing that you could make it, look at you, you're a captain at a regional airline and you've had really no issues. And, um, and actually, um, while finishing up, uh, the last two things I want to put out is, uh, um, AOPA has really good medical support. So like, if you have something questioning medical, like that, you can reach out to AOPA and, um, they would answer that before you put yourself in jeopardy before going to an AME or a regular physician. Um, that was the big thing. And then 
Um, as you said, I was the first pilot to fly that you flew with that had hearing aids and, you know, like I said, but I remember meeting another gentleman at Sandpiper. Um, he's over at a different company now, but Justin, he had, was born completely deaf and he had the right. cochlear implant. And he also was like, I was really impressed with him. It was like to see him successful, um, yeah. being the captain, uh, with us at Sandpiper. And, um, so it was definitely, um, that really impressed me. And, um, you know, it's just like, it was something like knowing that I'm not the only one out there like that. And I know I'm definitely not. I do see several of my peers, uh, obviously with hearing aids that usually they're a lot older, you know, in their fifties, well, easily. And it's, you know, at that point it's kind of understandable, but for younger, when you're growing up with it, you know, I tell people don't be discouraged. So. Yeah. I met Justin a few times. We've actually hung out in Chicago. Um, oh, okay. I've never flown with him personally. Uh, but yeah, I believe he's, uh, the United States' first pilot to, uh, receive a, a first-class medical with cochlear implants. I thought that was very impressive uh, that that he was able to accomplish that. Um, so yeah, there there are plenty of other pilots out there. I've flown with I've flown with others since then, and, and exactly what you said. Usually they're much older, you know, captains that are that are in their uh, late part of their careers, and obviously because of age or whatever, um, or maybe previous equipment that they flew in the military is very loud and course you know that's acceptable hearing loss over time because you're in that environment but um you know let's get back to your journey so you you got your your ga flying instruction you started it uh, in high school carried your way through worked your way through it which is very uh just wonderful to hear yeah and you mentioned aopa let me just uh for those listeners that may not uh, know what AOPA stands for, it's Aircraft Owners and Pilots Association. You can find their website at aopa.org. I'll put a link in the show notes. They are a plethora of information, especially for those interested in aviation or just starting out. You can get everything from legal services to medical help, and also they have a instruction portion of their website where they have online tutorials and they explain all kinds of basic principles of flight to IFR instruction. So definitely a great resource for pilots. And I encourage everyone to check it out after the show. So you, you graduated from the University of Dubuque in 2010. And you got a job at some point, a little after that, as a line service technician at, is it the Dubuque airport? How did you get that job? And, and what was that like? I kind of, how I got that job was just kind of keeping my ear to the ground and, you know, application. And then I just, um, during the years that I worked there is, um, we would have the North American trainer association come in. And so these were the, uh, pilots that owned the T6s and the T28s, but mainly we catered to the T6s and they would uh, do the big, uh, formation flying clinic prior to Oshkosh the week before. So I, I would say a year before that, and, you know, I just kind of just, you know, volunteered one of my weekends off one or two days uh, during that week to get my foot in the door, you know, and uh, help out. And um, so it was kind of pretty cool to work around the marshalling, you know, the parking the T6s and, you know, seeing them come in and meet the people that fly in. But it's also because, uh, the uh, FBO arranged all the uh, volunteer service. So it's kind of got my foot in the door with the FBO, creating a good impression, you know, with the good work ethic they are. I think like the two days I was there, you know, before I got hired, you know, it's like I was there like from the morning to 
from start to finish, you know, those two days. Cause it was like, I, you know, at that time, you know, like I lived, breathed aviation. I tried to do as much as I could. So that got me in the door. And then obviously when I heard they were hiring, I filled out the paperwork and then, you know, just kind of like the manager and the boss that was working there, the, still is there, you know, recognized my name and kind of called me up for the interview process. And it was pretty much the rest is there. You know, it was a part-time job. Uh, did an interview with Great Lakes, didn't quite pan out. Um, you know, the biggest thing that do me in that interview was is like, well, it was my very first interview, but the other was uh, I didn't know about, nobody told me about gouges and I was very, nobody told me about jet charts too. So um, I didn't know how to read those. So it's just like, okay, they're pretty much the same. Now that I'm using for my job, it's like, but back then it was like, I know it's the same, but it was like reading a whole different language. And yeah. um, essentially, you know, like as well, didn't quite get the job. And the other was just like, unfortunately, 2010, coming off the uh, economic downturn in 2008. And, you know, so, you know, companies could still take, they were doing their recalls. And it was just like, it was challenging. And so it's just like, I wanted to stay involved with aviation, you know, so the FBO was my best way at the time. I felt like it was a, a good start into it. So. Yeah. Um, so, and you also had a stint. Let me just ask you real quick. You had a stint at the Aerial Imagery Solutions. What were you doing there? Um, so, when I was working on my double eye, um, the instructor that I had kind of poured my name to a, a friend of his who lived uh, nearby, who ran a photography uh, aerial photography business, and his business was more with agriculture, where. Um, Farmers could call up and say like, "Hey, I need like a health report on my crop field." And so, like I said, with a basically with an infrared camera and near infrared, um, you can tell like by the health of the crop by how much light is reflected off. You know, so it's like I want to say I don't remember a hundred percent, but if it's like a brighter reflection, the grass is you know not the grass, but your, your crops are healthier. Now, if it's like a duller because they're not healthy. You can tell, like, okay, am I having a blight? Um, is water, is the irrigation channel through the field working properly? Um, so we would provide that kind of service. So um, he had a uh, Cherokee 140. Um, that was, I would say, probably one the one dog of an airplane that we flew. Um, he had the <laughs> FTC for auto gas, and let's just say, like, I was, I'm a big heavy set. I wouldn't say heavy set, but you know, big guy. And his son, who would run the camera equipment, um, sat in the back. So, like I said, a little Cherokee 140, 150 horses, you know, taking off on a grass strip. I mean, like, we made it out of there. But it was definitely, like, I remember it was, like, the longest Max performance, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It was, like, it was a stable airplane, but it was just a dog. And, And I would just say that was the first and only time that I ever flew an airplane with the Autogas STC. And I'm, like, it just... Ben so used a hundred used a hundred low lead and I'm like, God, this just smells so unnatural, you know, auto gas. Yeah. And it was just yeah. like um he did get an arrow later on and but uh I did most of the work in the Cherokee, um, which was kind of more the reliable and stable platform. But the arrow was nice for the jobs that were a little bit farther away as well. So it was just nice too. So um I did enjoy doing that, you know, and then um at that time I was more focusing on, and it was an on-call basis. So he had customers, but um, he like when he couldn't do it himself. That's when I got called in to help out. So, 
Gotcha. So your journey continued on, and then in uh, 2015, you were hired at a regional airline that we commonly refer to here on the Squawk Ident uh, podcast as Sandpiper Regional. It's obviously an alias because uh, we want to protect the uh, fact that we don't represent our companies in any way. So Sandpiper Regional, uh, a relatively large regional airline that we both flew at for a period of time. How was that transition for you? Uh, was it just like, uh, okay, I applied, I interviewed, and eat a piece of cake? Or was it quite a bit of a challenge to go from GA to a 121 operator and on a turbine aircraft? I would have to say it was kind of a bit of a challenge. Uh, and, um, you know, obviously at that point I was flight instructing, um, you know, as a CFI and double I, uh, at the university of Dubuque. And, um, but, you know, I was seeing my peers move on and I was kind of thinking about the next and better thing. And a part of it was just like, it was nice to be finally getting paid, you know, to, for my job and so for my passion, which I really enjoyed. But at the same time, I was like looking at the, like, I can't keep living off of this salary, you know, it was just like a little bit of challenging, you know, like full time. And then it was just like, I was at a 141 school and if your students don't show up, it's just like, you're the left one holding the bill, you know, so to speak. And it's like, um, in terms of like, I suffer financially and they're not getting, making any progress. So it's just like, I enjoyed the teaching, but it just wasn't there for me financially. So, um, I put in my application. I had some of my peers that were getting their hours and they put in, um, I remember like one of my buddies, he was so quiet about it and that I didn't realize until like that fall. And I'm like, dude, where were you? And it's just like, I got a job with Sandpiper. And I'm like, you didn't say anything. And it's like a lot of us, you know, at that time, you know, everybody's, um, was very secretive, uh, our particular flight school, you know, it's just like our, chief flight instructor wanted to keep us around, you know, like the good instructors he wanted to keep around. And so, um, I was good. So it's just like, and I, I made it kind of quiet on my own. And it was just the other, it's just like, you didn't want to rock the boat, you know, cause it's just like, if they knew you were going elsewhere, they would take away your students or like siphon your students away to other instructors. And nobody wanted that. So, right. um, uh, so Anyway, I filled out my application process and, you know, prior to that, you know, I've been doing job fairs, you know, kind of trying to get educated on the, um, what they possibly expect. I did ask my peers and, you know, um, so I filled out the app on airline app and, you know, hit send. And I think it was fairly quick and forward. And I put out for like four companies on that same application process. And, um, so I had a chance to interview with all those companies. And at that time, you know, the strategy from our advisor and telling us like senior back a few years before is like do multiple interviews. And so it's like, I had made a ranking out of different companies that I wanted to interview with, um, Republic, Horizon, ExpressJet and Sandpiper. I have interviewed with uh, the three, four different companies. I did have the one rejection and everybody else I had a tentative offer. So it's just kind of like, and I figured at that time, like, well, if I'm going to fly in Sandpipe and our school had a university of Buick had a bridge program, which was more of not a pipeline program. Um, it was more of like a preference hiring. So if you came from this flight school, we would give you a preferential hiring in the interview. So, so, um, so that's what got me in. And also I was like looking at like, okay, quality of life, Chicago based Dallas, New York, Miami at the time. 
I think they had just shut down Boston or Boston might've been closed for a few years at 2015. But um, I, that wasn't really thinking on my mind at that point. And I, um, so, but I was kind of thinking quality of life, you know, if I can be Chicago based and like we flew to Dubuque and I'm like, well, I could fly, get paid to fly home, you know, paid, you know, to enjoy a working trip home. So it was just like that, what, kind of i would say was one of the big factors what brought me over to sandpiper and then plus i was like yeah. legacy wanted to uh change the name of the regional services so, so like yeah the og the og sandpiper yeah, so chain. i wanted to fly with the yeah. og company so let's yeah. just put it that way so yeah. that what kind of brought me over those kind of a couple of factors and then plus i had a lot of my peers come over there and they uh spoke highly of it so it's just like if everybody speaks highly of it what can be wrong with it and then Republic at the time wasn't in the greatest financial situation. I'm like, I didn't want to be possibly stuck in a situation of bankruptcy. And then Horizon was like, which I didn't get that interview. It was just like, had I gotten it, would have been commute. And then ExpressJet, I knew they had a Chicago operation, but it, uh, I think it was just like, who was offering the bonus too? And it was just like, uh, Sandpiper was going to give me an extra $5,000 to come in there. So it was just like, kind of help that in the quality of life potential is what brought that me nudge you over the, uh, over the line there. And uh, Hey, that $5,000 yeah. check on day one was kind of the, the turning point for you. Yeah. Well, and then you know, that I knew and I the fact get 5,000, could... but then I showed up yeah. and they gave me another 5,000 and which was like a new bonus. And I was like, where's the extra money coming from? And then they explained it. I'm like, wow, I did not realize that. So, And it's been a, quite a journey for you. Uh, you've, been, you've been at Sandpiper now for over five years. And you know, we met, you were a, a young FO, uh, you know, pretty new with the company, I believe, when we flew together a few times. And uh, I left in 2018 uh, to move on with the flow through to Legacy Airlines. Um, and you, you upgraded a captain, I think it was not too far after that, right? Yeah, um, two and a half years actually. Um, so I upgraded in. Um, awesome. Yeah, that was just like I remember when we got I got hired at Sandpiper. The attitude there was so negative. I mean, um, from fellow first officers, unfortunately, the captains were all happy to have us there, but the uh, some of us in our ranks were not the happiest. And let's just say, um, I, I haven't seen the negative attitude in a long time. You know you know, once things started improving, um, with the new contract that was signed prior to my arrival, but, uh, um, well, what I want to say is, uh, well, you, you came over they, at a time when the companies were, the, the mainline companies were merging the big merger. And yeah. so there was a lot of contract. We've talked about this in the show before. There are a lot of contract negotiations, a lot of pitting one regional wholly owned against another regional wholly owned. Um, and meanwhile, yeah. our union was saying, you know, stand the line, don't, you know, don't undercut, uh, your, your co regional partners, uh, contract. And it was happening anyway. We even talked about it in the last show for a little, a, a brief moment there. Yeah, I... So you came in at a time that was very difficult. I mean, there was a lot going on from, from pilots getting in literal fist fights in the terminal to uh to to pilots flipping the bird as the other uh airplane taxied by because it was like hey you're coming into my base flying my old airplanes and you know screw you guys and so there was a lot of animosity going on and yeah, a lot of blacklisting um, so you came well, in at a pretty it, tough time 
exactly and i just remember like there were people like why did you come here like what's wrong with you i mean it was just like um <laughs> you know and for me it was just like i was just happy to have a job that where um you know i was getting paid you know and people complained about the substandard pay back then you know five years ago for a first officer but me coming off from being a flight instructor that to me was i felt like i was making bank you know i was you know like okay i can you know look definitely be able to pay my bills, save up, you know, and live be live comfortably and not worry about stretching it every dollar out, you know, from paycheck to paycheck. And it's definitely um that shoot me over. I didn't let those people with the negative attitude get to me. And, you know, and I think once uh things started the progression, you know, like I said, the you know, the upgrade and it's just like I remember before I came there and it's just like and even early on, it was like expect to be on reserve for four years. Uh captain was upgrade time was eight years you know and all these long stretched out numbers and at the same time i'm like i just wanted to get started i was and i was like i'll worry about those numbers later and um fortunately like i was only on reserve for a year as a first officer and things moved pretty quickly and there was plenty of flying so i never felt like i had a bad quality of life um, even on reserve early on. And then when I upgraded at two and a half years in, um, I, um, you know, was only on reserve as a captain for six months. And because I lived locally, it wasn't that bad of a deal. And, um, yeah. I knew, I guess I say I educated myself, you know, that it was in, um, I also listened to my peers and mentors, you know, like, this is all part of the process. So it's just like, would say, I guess they paying your dues and, um, I would say though the upgrade process uh, was a very fascinating one that I would have never expected in a thousand years to happen, you know, um, yeah. during our upgrade time. And um, if you want, I'd like to share about that if you don't mind. Yeah. So uh, that's my next question actually is what have been some of your biggest challenges, you know, with your aviation career? Was it when you upgraded in such a short period of time at a, at a regional airline? Um, I would say it was one of my challenges up there. Um, I think the part of it was, you know, it's just like right when I got my thousand hour, you know, I, I was keeping tabs on it and it was just like, you know, I'm, I don't think I'm quite ready. Yeah. I couldn't technically upgrade, but at that time our company had been so stagnant, like there was no upgrade. It hasn't happened. And so they were finally catching up with everybody who was ready to chomp at the bit to upgrade that who hadn't left for other carriers. And um, so it's like, so I waited to upgrade. Um, so it was like, and when, um, so I had about 1500 hours, uh, 121 time. And uh, it was just like, at that point I was actually feeling comfortable. Like I was ready to upgrade. I was just like, you know what? I think I'm ready for it. I know I'm going to be nervous, but it's going to be like any new venture. It's going to be a challenge. And, uh, so. John at that time was yeah. the, uh, or Tony, you may know too, was the, uh, program at the 121 check ride program or was it the AQP? Did they switch that over on the 145 the, at that time? I had the qualified upgrade, uh, okay. training. So I chose to stay on the 145. Um, you know, it's like, well, it was just the quality of life was there. And, you know, it was just like, why well, stress myself out learning a whole new aircraft on top of the, all uh, the additional captain check ride, you know, your know, fed ride. So, um, I just kind of figured that was kind of the best rationale and, um, 
So yeah, it was quite the challenge. Um, so the ground score went smoothly. You know, it was kind of like uh, you mentioned on your previous episode, you know, Captain Charm School, so to speak. And it's just more like going through, reforming through, just reviewing through all the policies of all the things you should be familiar with the captain's weight, weight and balance and uh, whatnot. Um, so we completed that. And well, the day before I'm supposed to go down uh, for a sim, uh, Hurricane Harvey hits Houston where I was supposed to be completing my sim. And uh, our company was at that time, um, we were maxed out on simulator space. So we were going, sending people to St. Louis, all the sims in Dallas and Houston, and actually France. Uh, we got to go to France for training. So I was originally supposed to go to Houston and while well, Harvey, well, changed that plan. So our training department puts us on hold, you know, like, well, we had just taken the oral and everything and it's just like they wanted to send us back to the line you know like when they realized that the mess in houston was not going to go away anytime soon because it was going to be about two weeks uh one say at that time they were saying like two to three months before the flight safety could get back to normal and um you know living accommodation hotels and you know everything so it's like company wanted to send us back to the line for those who were like well you took your we'll just bring you back later and then you would have to start all over Union got involved and they said like, well, they already took their oil and like, you guys have this extra capacity agreement with a SIM facility in France, send them over to France. So originally um, the, the France uh, SIM option was only like reserved for like two people out of every upgrade class. And so we were the first large group to go over for the short term after Harvey. So it was kind of nice. So we went over to Morlaix, France, uh, Sam Piper, had gone out of their way to uh, get the SIM certif certificated, you know, to FAA standard or get the FAA approval. So was, uh, we spent two weeks over there. Actually, it was like a week and a half in the SIM uh, doing uh, the, you know, the, the, the qualified upgrade tra uh, SIM training. And so it was definitely a unique experience. And, you know, to go over to a place I've never been um and just experience you know what aviation is like in a different country like while i tried to interact with other people over there you know so to speak but we were more focused on ourselves and i was focused on i wanted to do the upgrade training but uh there was a remember a couple of russian pilots there that were there for their recurrent training and you know it's just like yeah it was nice to catch up at avi aviation is a universal language so to speak uh, that you know a passion for a lot of people so um it was quite the experience to be able to do that and complete my uh sim ride over there and come back and then hey go to ioe and then uh yeah you know back here in the states so it was a one of you uh one of a kind unique experience um you know uh i definitely never thought i would have had that option you know all thanks to yeah. a hurricane you know yeah. it's just thanks, Harvey. as they can be but um <laughs> we was making the best of a bad situation uh, if you could go back in time and give yourself some advice uh, in terms of your career progression and whisper in your own ear, uh, what would you tell yourself? You know, that is a very good question. And um, I still always kind of wonder, you know, some days it's like I might tell myself this or tell myself that. But I think it's just like, um, I just like to tell myself like to where I'm at now, just like stay the path you know, and it's just like, don't be afraid to try. And, um, you know, like I said, the, I think it was just like, um, where everything will work out and it's 
if there was every time you have a, a doubt or a setback, you know, due to a failed check ride or something, it's just like experience is experience and make the most of it. You know, there is never, um, you can only allow something negative to become negative if you allow it to be, you know, I guess it's like, okay, I failed, you know, like every number of my working on my CFI, I remember not everybody passes on the first try. And, you know, so it's just like, I remember I failed my initial CFI check ride and it was just like, okay but i made the most of it you know, you learn from it you learn from your mistake and it's just like um you know we're all very type a we're very analytical of ourselves and it's just like it's just I'm, just make the most of these experiences you know take take from it and move forward you know i think that's the best what i would tell myself is um i never allowed it to stop me but you know it's just um yeah and and final question for you on this uh, segment of the uh of the show i'd like to finish off this interview with who is the one person that comes to mind that you would say had the biggest impact on your aviation career and why? I can't just narrow it down to one person, but I have a couple people, but I think my immediate family, like my mom, my dad, and my uncle, like the, they kind of supported me with this and, you know, what lit the fire, you know, for my passion for aviation. Um, with, I would say, I would say it's kind of like the biggest factor of, you know, like where I'm at today, you know, being supportive, you know, with my uncle hearing the stories of his airline business and all his flying tales and everything, uh, which really is appealing, you know, that kind of, that's what I would say the biggest influence. And then, um, my second one, uh, I guess my second one other person I would like to give a shout out was my, my double I flight instructor, you know, who kind of made everything, you know, work, uh, like, uh, I guess in terms of he, um, you know, was such a big mentor, he was able to uh, break down things, you know, so make things easy. And he was just, you know, someone that like, he could take something so serious and break it down to like, where you didn't feel so stressed out. And it was just like, I really enjoyed that, you know, having such a great mentor. And then, you know, for sure, especially with the double eye training, and then plus listening to all his story, uh, how he's been through the up and down of this industry as well. Um, you know, so it's definitely, it was really great to, I guess those would be those people that I would say would be a big factor yeah. or important, so. Yeah, for sure. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Uh, you know, it, it's been an amazing journey for you and I look forward to kind of keeping an eye on what your journey brings to you in the future as well uh thanks for being here for the first half of the show can you stick around for the second half oh definitely well we'll be right back right after the break Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the show. Well, I want to I thank John for, for giving us a window into his journey in aviation. Uh, we really do appreciate him being on the show today, and we did learn quite a bit as well. In this segment of the show, I'd like to talk a little bit about what I've been up to. Uh, Aviator Tony here, and I have been busy. The last two weeks have been a little crazy, and up until even today, we've been experiencing quite a bit out on the flight line. Yes, you heard me right. 
The Flight Line. This is from The Flight Line. So last week, I had a pretty tricky schedule. I had three days off, which are commonly referred to at at least a legacy, and I, I know Sandpiper as well, is a duty-free period. That's our day off, where we are free from all duty. The company is not going to contact us. We're not going to get a surprise schedule or anything happen because it's our day off, our duty-free period. My duty-free period was Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday, and my first day back was Wednesday. However, I noticed that my sign-in time for Wednesday was at 0045 on Wednesday. So that meant at 12.45 a.m. was my sign-in at Los Angeles International for my trip. It's what we commonly refer to in the industry as a red-eye. Well, normally, a red-eye, at least in the past, everything I've flown... You sign in around 10.30 at night or 11.30 at night, not past midnight. So it shows up the day before or that day uh, as, hey, you're working later. But when I checked my schedule in our company's app, it said that I had a duty-free period on Tuesday. So I went, aha, this is an I gotcha moment. You know, I could potentially misread my schedule and not show up. So I set an alarm. For Tuesday, reminding me that, hey, tonight you've got to drive out to the airport around 10 p.m. to make your sign-in. So as a matter of fact, that morning, I'm sitting there eating breakfast with the family, and my wife says, when are you going back to work? And I'm like, oh, I don't go back till tomorrow. And she's like, really? And I have you on the calendar for p.m. tonight. I went, oh, you're right. And sure enough, I checked my schedule, and I was like, crap, tonight I got to go to work. So... So I had that in the back of my mind, and I set a couple of alarms so that I knew what time to leave the house and got to the airport. It was a little weird getting to the airport at close to midnight. So I go down in operations, and the only other pilots there were the four 777 pilots that were getting ready to do an all-only cargo flight internationally over to Hong Kong. So I, I was like, wow, where's my captain? You know, there's nobody else in here. Or there's pilots, you know, taking a, a nap or sleeping because they got in too late to make their commute home into the, in the uh, sleep room there. But I don't see a captain pulling up paperwork or anything. I'm like, ah, well, maybe they're just out, you know, grabbing a cup of coffee and they'll meet me at the airplane. No big deal. So I downloaded my uh, documents I needed for the flight, the flight plan, the weather information, headed on over to the aircraft. The aircraft had been shut down, uh, electrically powered down because it had been sitting there pretty much all day. So I powered up the aircraft, introduced myself to the flight attendants, told them that, well, I don't see a captain here. Uh, they haven't signed in for their trip. Our app tells us uh, when they signed in. I said, but they'll probably be here. I mean, I hope. So, of course, now we're boarding the aircraft. I've got everything ready. The aircraft is ready to go. I did all the origination checks and flows. And all we needed was a warm body in the left seat. And about 45 minutes prior to the flight, which is already pushing it to 15 minutes behind when we should be on the aircraft, uh, no captain. So here I am looking up to see if I can find the captain's phone number so I can text message or, or give him a call and say, hey, uh, are you going to make it? Are you just running behind? Are you in traffic? What's going on? And I realized that the phone number was a Phoenix area code. And the red light went on and I thought, uh-oh, this is not good. Just then my phone rings. It's crew tracking. Hey, 
First Officer uh, Tony, have you seen your captain? Uh, actually, no, I haven't. And I was just looking up his phone number. Um, I'm afraid that he might have misread his schedule. And they're like, well, okay. And I said, well, if you get a hold of him, maybe he fell asleep taking a nap coming in on an earlier flight and decided to take a nap or something in the crew. I don't know. But could you please call me? Let me know so I can make an appropriate PA to the passengers if that's what needs to happen. And they're like, oh, yeah, sure. And just then, a woman with a clipboard and a lanyard came down, and she was the ground security coordinator. And she said, have you seen your captain? I'm like, "Uh, no, I haven't. I just got off the phone with crew tracking. I'm really not sure where the captain is. And this was now 30 minutes prior. We're almost complete with boarding. The cargo is almost complete in terms of it being loaded on the aircraft. The fuel has been boarded, and I've already sent our total fuel to the load planner. So we're pretty much all set to go. And at 30 minutes prior, if you're not in your seat ready to go, uh, it's a problem. So at 10 minutes prior... Uh, some other managers came and said, well, can you go into the crew room and, and see if your captain's down there? I said, listen, I don't know what my captain looks like. I've never flown with this individual before. And the fact that they haven't signed in yet, I mean, I'm not going to go in there and start tapping on sleeping pilot's feet to say, hey, are you my captain? <laughs> it's not going to happen, lady. So uh, sure enough, I had to make a PA letting the passengers know, hey, uh, unfortunately, uh, we're all set to go up front and, uh, you know, got all your bags loaded up, but we are missing a pilot and uh, we're doing our best to find out, make sure that he's okay. Uh, and he's aware that he's supposed to be here. Uh, we don't know what's happening right now in terms of if he's going to be here or not. So as soon as I get more information, I'll pass that along to you, to you. And I do appreciate your patience. And it's like the maximum PA I want to make as a first officer, because, you know, uh, captain's not even there. Sure enough, about 10 minutes past departure time, the uh, manager came down and said, look, you're, we couldn't get a hold of your captain. Uh, we've left m- multiple messages. And it, you know, at this point, it's like 1.45 in the morning. And I'm like, well, if he's asleep, his phone's off. He's not going to answer the phone. She's like, well, yeah, we're going to delay the flight until, until 11 a.m. tomorrow morning. It was nine hours away. Why nine hours? Well, because the flight attendants could legally at that point, after deplaning the aircraft, go to a hotel, sleep, have their minimum rest, which flight attendants don't fall under the same flight rules of rest requirements as pilots. They still fall under Part 121 operations. And the minimum rest they need is nine hours. So that's what they gave them. And they're like, all right, you're going to fly it out in the morning. In the meantime, they called another captain and first officer to fly the entire flight sequence. So they told me, well, go home. And you'll be under recovery obligation. Well, I was, okay. So the next morning, I got a text message from the captain I was supposed to fly with. And he was apologizing profusely, saying, I'm so sorry I misread my schedule. I saw that on Tuesday. It was a duty-free period and didn't think that I was starting at midnight You know, on, on Wednesday morning. Uh, I thought it was showing up at midnight on Wednesday evening. It didn't put the two and two together. Honest mistake. So, uh, yeah. Uh, I got removed from the flying, got to go home, sleep in my own bed, uh, was not called for any kind of recovery obligation, and I got paid for a three-day trip. Wow, nice, dude. Score, except you had to drive at 2 o'clock in the morning and back home. It's amazing how quickly you can get home at 2 o'clock in the morning. Yeah. In Los and Angeles. how motivated you are, too. To get <laughs> <Yeah. home. laughs> and I wasn't that tired because I was, I mean, I had probably 
seven cups of coffee, but uh-huh. I don't I was <laughs> Which brings me to my next point. I have a feeling that uh, I was going to say, guns don't kill people. It's husbands that show home early from work that do. Anyway. (laughs) (laughs) Pilot problems. (laughs) Yeah, no. So, Rob, you were telling me a little bit about laser strikes. You know, I I was... I text messaged you, I think, a couple days after that happened to me. I'm like, dude, you know, I got a great story for the show. And yeah. And you were like, hey, man, do you mind if I talk about laser strikes? And I was like, that's perfect. Yeah. yeah. What, what the you, uh, what FAA sent out a, uh, made a post on Facebook about laser strikes. And I thought that was an interesting topic because uh, uh, not only affects, um, you know, us, it, um, us airline pilots, but it affects any, every pilot in general. And um, it's a huge safety thing. And I don't think, people realize the uh, ramifications of pointing a laser at an airplane. So I thought we'd talk a little bit about it and um, just kind of spread the word using our uh, aviation podcast. Um, laser strikes, I mean, so just imagine this in, in general. You uh, get up in the middle of the night and you're making your way, let's say, to the refrigerator, but you don't want to wake anybody up and you uh, you know, it's a dark room, so you don't want to turn on any lights and you, you kind of wait till you can kind of see uh, in the dark where you're going. And then all of a sudden somebody turns on the light and then they turn it right back off again because they see it and they're scared. What happens to your eyeballs? Well, they adjust to the light immediately. And then when the light goes off, you can't see anything because your pupils, you went from fully dilated to, you know, closed up. And now it takes a little while for them to open back up. Well, that's very similar to what the onset of a laser will do to a pilot flying an airplane. Uh, What does laser mean, by the way? Light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. Man, crazy. I didn't uh, know that. Crazy acronym. (laughs) That's it. So it's basically an amplified light. Um, it's a very, very high powered focused light beam. So that when that, if that laser, um, happens to make its way into your eyeballs, um, it can, uh, temporarily blind a pilot, uh, who's operating the aircraft. And, you know, at nighttime, uh, our, our, we're using a lot of visual cues to, uh, to, uh, you know, uh, operate the aircraft safely down to, uh, you know, just basically safely operate the aircraft. But most of the time you're, you know, when, when those laser strikes are happening, we're down low, we're below 5,000 feet. Um, and things can happen pretty quick when you're uh, below 5,000 feet traveling a couple hundred miles an hour. Um, so any uh, distraction or any kind of temporary blindness um, is, a, is a severe hazard to an aviator. Um, so that would tempor- temporarily blind the pilot. Um, you know, if, if we're trying to follow a very complicated approach procedure where there's some turns and decelerations and you're using some visual cues from your instrumentations to, uh, to you know, slow the airplane down and configure the aircraft, uh, a temporary um, blind, uh, temporary laser strike, we call it, would blind you and you would no longer be able to... Uh, safely operate your aircraft. So um, there is fe- there is federal law that prohibits you from um, actually pointing a laser at an airplane. Um, I think the FBI 
has uh, been able to, and uh, federal, the FBI and law enforcement have been successfully able to uh, um, catch a couple individuals that were pointing lasers at the airplane. And actually, I haven't been able to get to the article that tells you how much the fine is or what the ramifications are, but let's just say they're pretty serious, <laughs> pretty hefty if you do get caught. Um, and Roger, did you ever get struck by a laser before? I have not ever been struck in the eye by a laser we were hit um i did see one landing in mexico one time many years ago uh, when i was flying at express jet however fortunately i have not ever been um and that it didn't strike me in the eye and i i was not affected by it thankfully other than that fortunately i haven't had any other personal incidents with any laser strikes. so yeah there you go i think tony you had a story about a laser strike didn't you i did have a laser strike. Um, I think I mentioned it before, but for all those new listeners out there, uh, it's extremely serious. And you know, Rob, I really appreciate you bringing it up. Uh, I'm glad. I'm glad you took the time. Um, and I had no idea what what laser stood for. It's, oh, you didn't know that? No, that's that's pretty cool. Uh, my story was uh, back in my Sandpiper days, I was based in Los Angeles, and uh, we were doing uh, San Diego turns in the evening, and it was my last flight uh, of the evening, and I was the first officer on the flight, and we were cleared a visual approach to 2-5 left simultaneously with a straight-in Brasilia on 2-5 right. So they... I was the pilot monitoring at the time. Uh, it was a visual approach, so we were on the 45 to a downwind. I mean, it was so textbook. It was it was pretty scary, actually. Uh, it was like a VFR entry into the pattern, and uh, it was late at night, so not a big deal. Not much traffic. the The tower controller told us, uh, you know, Sandpiper one two three, uh, you are cleared the visual. Uh, do not overshoot. You have a Brasilia on a straight in final for two five right. Advise the Brasilia in sight. So I look out what the Embraer calls the DV window, the direct vision window, the right side of the aircraft, and I spot the turboprop coming in on final. And I, I called the traffic, and the tower says, "Okay, don't pass up the Brasilia. You are cleared the visual two five right. Maintain visual separation." So I read that back and I tell the captain, yeah, you're, you're going pretty fast. You might want to slow because to final because the Brasilia's puts it along here. And he goes, oh yeah, is he, is he still back there? Do we still pass him? So I go to look out the window a second time. And just then I look down and just south of the 105 freeway, which pretty much divides uh, the final between the left and the right for a period of time. And I see a green laser and it's being pointed at the air. And I go, huh, some kids down there must have a laser. And just then, the laser hit the cockpit DV window. It completely illuminated the darkened cockpit into a bright green. It struck me directly in the face. And it was extremely painful. It's as if you were staring at the sun without any kind of protective glasses at all. Wow. It burned. And I go, oh, crap, I got hit by a laser. And the captain said, 
where? And he looks up into his seat to look over to see if he could see the laser. And just then, this laser that's like rotating in the sky hits him, illuminates the cockpit again. He goes, oh, God. Like, heads down, heads down. Uh, are you okay? And he goes, yeah, I I'm okay. I don't think it hit me in the face, but man, that's, that's bright. I'm like, you keep your heads down. You keep your head in the cockpit. I'm going to... Uh, let ATC know. He's like, okay. He goes, are you okay? I said, yeah, I'll be fine. I just, but everything, like you said, my pupils were then restricted and everything was so dark. I could barely make out the instrumentation. And we were at a low level on final coming in visual conditions at night into LAX with traffic parallel to, to us. supposed to see and avoid. <laughs> exactly. So I said, uh, tower this is you know sandpiper one two three we were hit by a laser and the tower controller says understand you were struck by lightning mind you this is a day or an evening vfr night vfr flight no not a cloud in the sky i said no we were hit by a laser and the tower says understand you were hit by a laser uh do you know approximately where <laughs> and my dumb ass goes oh let me see so I look out the window again, and guess what happens a second time? Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like, ah, oh, crap. And my captain says, stop looking outside. I'm like, you're right, you're right. <laughs> so I put up the, the sunshade on the DV window at nighttime, and I look at the DME, and I said, well, it's approximately 7 DME on the localizer about a block south of the 105 freeway uh, just behind our location. And they're like, okay, are you requiring any assistance? And I looked at my captain. He goes, no, I'm okay. I, I can land it. I'm like, no, we do not require any assistance at this time. Like, okay. And just then, Sky West pipes up and goes, yeah, uh, we can confirm. Uh, Sandpiper was hit by a laser. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> so they saw it too. Yeah, they saw, they saw us get hit. They saw the laser. And so as we cleared the runway, we, we, we parked the aircraft for the night. And we went into the uh, crew room. And we just... We're kind of, I was rubbing my eyes. He was rubbing his eyes. And we we're like, should we go to a doctor? I mean, is this is maybe? So what we did realize is there were a lot of reports that we had to fill out. And we we're like, well, we're here. We're in operations. We're done for the night. Let's just go ahead and fill these out. So every company is going to have a little bit different uh, requirement on what to fill out. At minimum, it's going to be to let your chief pilot know or let operations know of the event. Second uh, thing is you have to fill out an FBI report because the FBI gets involved. Um, I later uh, discovered, because it happened and I didn't feel like I handled the situation appropriately or the best, um, I later spoke with a couple other captains who had uh, been struck by lasers, and they said, you got to think of it like a military action. So if you see a laser, immediately the callout shouldn't be, oh, a laser, because the other pilot's going to go, oh, where? Your callout should be heads down in the cockpit, eyes down, there's a laser illumination, heads down. And that'll tell the other pilot, oh, crap, uh, I'm going to keep my heads down because I got to keep my vision intact, regardless of what segment of flight you're in. So laser illumination can be extremely damaging. Now, I later went to uh, a, a doctor to have my eyes checked. I went to an optometrist who did an, a scan of my eye and luckily there was no damage. Uh, funny story is about two weeks later, same exact location, United Airlines 737 was struck by a laser around the same location. Both pilots ended up in the emergency room to get checked out. So it's a very serious thing, comes with very, very steep fines. And yes, 
Uh, I have heard of a situation where a pilot uh, landing in Fresno at night, which anybody that has ever landed in Fresno at nighttime, it's pretty dark, um, was hit by a laser. He reported it to the tower. Sheriff helicopter happened to be at the airport at the time, flew over the, the suspected area, and did locate the two teenage boys that were then, at that point, shining the laser at the police helicopter. Both boys were arrested and, you know, they had to deal with the penalties, therefore. Uh, the captain later received a phone call while on his overnight from the FBI, and the agent said, identified herself and said, yeah, I'm agent so-and-so with the FBI. I understand you reported a laser strike. What can you tell me? We did apprehend the two individuals. So pretty serious stuff. Don't be a bonehead and point a laser at an airplane, ever. Yeah. John, have you ever had a a laser strike yourself? Yeah, I had actually two of them. Um, One was when I was flight instructing. Um, We were coming back from a late cross country. And um, like I said, we were on fine. It was VFR visual. And like I said, we were coming right back in and we were flying over the. I, I, it's like I said, fortunately, like I said, I saw them shining the laser. Like the cockpit didn't, they didn't hit us in an illumination like where in the whole cockpit was lit up, but I could see the laser dancing off the wing. You know, we're in a Cessna 172. Um, I reported it to Chicago center and like, Hey, we got a laser strike. Um, and, um, it's in the parking lot at the local movie theater. And it's like, you know, being a local, like at the time out in Dubuque, it was like, so I never heard what came of that. And that time it's like, okay, didn't know about, I would say should probably should have read up more on like, okay, required ports and documents, uh, reports and document on that, you know, fill that out. But I let ATC know at that time. And then the second time was over at Sandpiper. Um, we were at cruise, I want to say like 25, 24,000 feet. And someone tried to laser us um, at that altitude. And like said, uh, I just saw the kind of like you said, you just see somebody waving the, the green light. Fortunately, we didn't get struck with that. I could tell, like, didn't have a cockpit light up. I mean, I've been fortunate in that event, but I kind of do think about that in the back of my mind, you know, like, uh, as I educated myself, especially becoming to Sandpiper, um, if you are in an area of suspected uh, laser activity, um, you know, what should your response be? You know, it's like you said, uh, should be heads down, um, you know, to protect your vision. And I remember, a few years back, I remember for a while, Miami had a lot of problem, um, especially out if you went out to the Everglades. Uh, and I think it was just mainly just bored teenagers. You got nothing better to do on a summer night. And, um, you know, and it's just like, I remember they would be reporting laser strikes on uh, or possible laser um, emission on the departure frequency numerous times. And it's just like, fortunately, knock on wood, you know, I never have a, an incident like you, Tony, but it's just like, you know, I keep that in my mind. You know, if I have, uh, you know, suspected or if I've been forewarned, you know, I'm thinking about that. Okay. Heads down, you know, don't look out the window, no matter how tempting it is. And I think one of the strategies they said, you know, like if you hit like the ident on your transponder, it's going to flag on ATC's radar. And they, because they record all that stuff in a 20, you know, um, you could say like, they can look at that, like, where do you hit the ident feature? And they could look to use that as an approximate location. That's what I've been told. Yeah, that's a good uh, one. I could be wrong. So. Makes sense. Okay. Well, I've been fortunate, so. Okay. And, John, thank you for sharing uh, that. That's some great advice. To, I never thought of that, to hit the ident. Now, now, if you're in New York Center, you're low, 
it's going to be hard to get a word out, you know? So yeah, that might work, you know? You might piss off a controller that their screen suddenly flashes, but hey, at least you have a location, like you said. So yeah, there's definitely a, a more bonus to, to doing that than, you know, uh, pissing off a controller or something. But if you're an air, air traffic controller and you're listening to the show, please uh, write in. Uh, send us an email at aviatortony at gmail.com. That's uh, Alpha Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, Oscar number Yankee at gmail.com. And we'd love to hear about it. Uh, I'd like to wrap it up because this week marked the 19th anniversary of an extremely difficult time in our history. And, you know, we focus on the journey of the aviator, and there are many aviators out there that weren't able to complete their journey. Never before have any of us witnessed such an unthinkable act of terror, and never before have we watched in horror live on national television. U.S. airliners were being used as weapons upon our citizens and on our soil. The events of September 11th have forever changed the way we live. We here at Squawk Ident would like to take a moment to recognize the flight crew members that had their lives stolen from them. To honor their memory and to help us all to never forget, we feel it is important to remember their names. The following are the names of the murdered airline employees on board American Flight 11, United Flight 175, American Flight 77, and United Flight 93, all taken down by acts of terrorism on September 11th, 2001. On American Airlines Flight 11, pilots Captain John Ogonowiski and First Officer Thomas McGinnis, flight attendants Barbara Arstugi, Jeffrey Coleman, Sarah Lowe, Karen Martin, Kathleen Nokosia, Betty Oing, Jean Roger, Diane Snyder, and Madeline Sweeney. On United Airlines Flight 175, pilots Captain Victor Sarancini and First Officer Michael Horrocks. Flight attendants Robert Fangman, Amy Jarrett, Amy King, Catherine Labori, Alfred Marchand, Jesus Sanchez, Michael Toro, Alicia Titus, Customer Service Representative Marianne McFarlane. On American Airlines Flight 77, pilots Captain Charles Berlingame and First Officer David Charlebois. Captain Bud Flagg, retired. Flight attendants Michelle Heidenberger, Jennifer Lewis, Kenneth Lewis, Renee May, and Executive Assistant Mary Jane Booth. On United Flight 93, Captain Jason Dahl and First Officer Leroy Homer, Flight Attendant Lorraine Bay, Sandra Bradshaw, Wanda Green, Shishi Lyle, and Deborah Welsh. We will never forget you and the sacrifice that you all had to endure on 9-11. We will never forget our more than just words.
Well, that wraps up episode 55 of Squawk Ident. We hope that you are enjoying listening to the podcast. You can really help us out here on the Squawk Ident podcast by leaving us a review on your favorite podcast app. And please share the show with a friend. We appreciate your reviews and your feedback. You can also send us audio feedback as well or comments via the homepage of our website or the contact us tab as well. And that's located at www.aviatortony.com. That's Alpha Victor, the number eight, Romeo Tango, Oscar November Yankee.com. There you can check out the unique cover art that I produce for each episode. You can also find audio archives and the guestbook photo tab where you can see images of our many special guests from previous episodes. You can also contribute to Squawk Ident financially and help us offset the cost of producing the show, either with a one-time or a recurring contribution right there at the bottom of the home screen. Facebook and Instagram users can search Squawk Ident Podcast, and YouTube and Twitter users can search Aviator Tony and Squawk Ident to follow on the socials. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or iHeartRadio apps, it would really help us out if you could just take a moment and leave us a review. And don't forget to subscribe to Squawk Ident and tell a friend. In closing, I just want to say thank you for taking the time to listen to these grateful aviators. Keep the dirty side down out there. Be safe, be kind, and take care of each other. Gentlemen, it's been a pleasure and an honor on this very special episode to have this conversation with you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Tony. Have a good one. See you guys. Take care, Tony. Thanks very much. Good job, John.